It's time for Nordic on Tap. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. Many years ago, I stood outside the Norwegian Resistance Museum at Akersvis Castle. That's in Oslo. The friend with me declined to go in, saying she'd been through it all before, so I went through it alone. And I came out troubled and sad and also thoughtful. I was, I was amazed at the descriptions of courage of the Norwegians in fighting back against the Nazi occupying force in the face of impossible odds. Now, recently, a longtime journalist, his name's Don Jerry Pugnetti Jr., wrote a book about the Norwegian resistance in World War II. His book's called A Coat Died Black, and it's a work of historical fiction with main characters who are not real, but whose stories were based on the stories of real people in the resistance. As difficult a subject it is here to talk about war and real events, especially with what's going on these days, I found Jerry's book to be engrossing, and it it made me think of my visit to the Resistance Museum and my thoughts about courage. So I interviewed Jerry about his book to find out why he wrote it, what was behind it, and you'll meet him shortly. I should say here that this podcast may not be suitable for young ears because of the subject matter. So, first a little history. In September of 1939, Germany invaded Poland, setting off the Second World War. This was followed by the invasion of Norway, Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, and France in May of 1940. The history of World War II is long and complicated and nasty, but I thought I'd tell a little bit about Norwegian events. In Norway, the invasion began on April 9, 1940, with German troops landing at major ports such as Kristiansand, Stavanger, Bergen, Trondheim, and Narvik, and they also parachuted into some airfields. Now, initially, the Germans claimed that they had arrived to help Norway defend itself from Great Britain. But the Norwegian government wasn't having any of that. And before the Germans could capture the king, the royal family, and the treasury, managed to escape to Great Britain. Now, that's an amazing story right there that Jerry touches on during our interview. And I encourage you to read further about it. Anyway, in Norway, the leader of the small Norwegian National Socialist Party, his name was Vidkun Kvisling, proclaimed that he was leader of the nation's government. Kvisling had been a diplomat, military officer. He's got quite a history before World War II. In fact, he uh, was friends with Fridtjof Nansen, the explorer. But he eventually became prime minister in Norway, a pro-Nazi puppet, really, until 1945. And Kvisling was Norwegian, cooperating with the Nazis, 
helping spread propaganda, and so he was seen as a traitor of the worst kind to his country. And so other Norwegian pro-Nazi collaborators became known as Kvislings. In fact, that is a word in the English language as well. The Norwegians started resisting almost at the outset, or not cooperating fully with the Nazis, in the form of labor strikes and the school teachers. They were ordered to teach pro-Nazi propaganda. They refused. They said, no, we're not going to teach that. The Nazis countered with martial law and executions and set up concentration camps. Some concentration camps were set up in Norway in addition to the ones farther south. But the resistance movement, a a failure to cooperate and then fight back, became more firmly organized, and its members blew up or sabotaged the factories the Nazis had taken over to make their own war materials. So that's the crude Cliff's Notes version. Do they they even sell those little summaries anymore? That's the background to the main character in A Coat Dyed Black. His name's Bjorn. He lives on a farm near Bergen and finds himself all caught up in this. So I interviewed Jerry by Zoom in April of 2022 and asked him to start with his career before he sat down to write the book. Uh, The 1970s, when I was uh, early in my career as a reporter at the News Tribune in Tacoma and early in my marriage. So in some of those early conversations with my father-in-law, who was a a Norwegian immigrant, post-war immigrant, and he, I don't know what uh, prompted him to bring them up, but when we talked, uh, he gave me a few snippets on his involvement in the Norwegian resistance during World War II. And for me, I had never, or I knew nothing about Norway's involvement in World War II, but he created some white eyes and I was determined to find out. Right. And so that generated an interest. And uh, I guess looking at it from my journalistic lens, I thought it was, uh, it was, there were stories that needed to be told. And so uh, that spawned considerable research, which resulted in, I think, my, the, the books I've read, largely history of 40 plus and numerous taped interviews. In fact, the transcript, Eric, of my first uh, interview with my father-in-law, taped interview, on the good old cassette tape, you know, <laughs> um, was March 5th of 1978. And uh, there were others that followed, uh, not just of him, but of members of the family who were also involved in uh, resistance activities and uh, a number of uh, people of Norwegian uh, immigrants and those in Norway who were involved. So I set out to write a nonfiction book, but I did face obstacles. Probably the most, uh, the most notable was the, the, the family did not want to be named. Right. And, uh, you know, I respected that and understood it. They they uh, believed that you know what they did was no more important than what so many in Norway did, right. and they did not want to stand out. And so uh, clearly, that was a desire 
condition that I had to adhere to, plus there were others. I learned the language a fair amount and, you know, got reasonably good at it, except for me, the understanding, it must be my brain that just has difficulty processing what I'm hearing uh, in terms of another language. And so it inhibited my ability to ask follow-up questions and get the details of what I was being told. I, I used interpreters, you know, some family members uh, helped interpret for me. And so ultimately, and of course I had a busy career and, and so the project got shelved literally for decades, Eric. There were circumstances after I retired that rekindled my interest. And so I picked the project up. I, I really began writing in earnest in 2018. And so that led to this book. That's right in front of me. Yep. I'm very proud of it. Seems to me at some point you decided that it was going to be uh, fiction or historical fiction. Is that the right way to say it? Clearly, it was still, uh, even though everybody had passed on by then, it was a pledge that that I wanted to honor. I felt duty-bound to honor it. And I really believed that that historical fiction was a genre that I could carry out this book, fill in details of what likely occurred, create some fictitious places, some fictitious names, and and, and write a, a good story. And so that that enabled me to, to tell the story the way I wanted to. So I wanted to create two things. I wanted, first, I wanted to create a compelling page-turning story, a good story that people would read, enjoy, be entertained by. But at the same time, uh, history was very important. You know, I had a wealth of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a wealth of of research. And so I wanted to adhere to history, which I did. The book is based, much of it is based on real experiences, true events. The general framework of what went on is accurate. And so I wanted to create an accurate book that really adhered to the authenticity of history. And I'm very proud of that. So I, you know, I took a fictional character, molded a fictional character out of parts of three people and some, in addition, some of the characters of this book, other characters are based on real people and took them through the entire uh, five years of the Nazi occupation in Norway. Wow. You found yourself incorporating a lot of the truth. Well, actually, in the back of the book, you talk about a number of scenes and things that were actually happened yes. to somebody. I would say most of the book is based on history or, or real events. And, uh, and of course, dialogue was created. Obviously, I had to create dialogue and facts. And on occasion, I don't want to really forecast what's in the book. I want you know, I... No, no, right. No, we don't want to oil it. And, and a, there's one romance. Listen, you've got to have some romance. Sure. And that's, that's completely, it came out of my head, you know, so anyway. <laughs> well, you know, and there was a realism to that for me that it ended up being sort of bittersweet, both very capable people. But I think one of the line was that the war has changed me. 
Yes. And you know, that was a theme that I wanted to get across because, um, you know, I can tell you this, that my father-in-law, and really I have it documented, he immigrated to America uh, after the war to, in an attempt to escape his, uh, his memories and the horrors. It was interesting in his father had a journal and one of the, my wife, Wendy's uh, relatives in Norway had it and read me a, a section of that day, the day he boarded a ship to go to America. The, the father wrote how that he thinks he can escape his past, but it hasn't happened to anybody else and it won't happen to him. And, uh, and I can tell you, you know, the dreams in the night, uh, I can remember uh, being in the same room with him on an overnight stay. I heard the rustling. Uh, there were occasions uh, Wendy heard the screams during the night. So those horrors of war continued. Hey, tell me about, was it Captain Martin Linga, the, the, the fellow that the commandos got named after? If you don't mind, Please. I'm going to start with a general uh, backdrop of the resistance in Norway. You know, when you think about the Norwegian resistance, for that matter, the French resistance and the Dutch resistance, you know, you kind of, at first blush, you think of it as this uh, well-organized, well-oiled machine. But, of course, nothing mm -hmm. could be further from the truth. The, uh, the resistance came in so many different forms from being organized uh, to totally ragtag. There were a couple of, of organizations. One was uh, Milorg, M-I-L-O-R-G, right. which was uh, homegrown, sanctioned by the king and the government in exile. There was one sponsored by the British dubbed uh, uh, Churchill's Secret Army. Right. And basically it was uh, SOE, which uh, a weird name, Special Operations Executive. And it uh, operated in all the Nazi-occupied countries to, to send people in to organize various resistance activities. And so as part of that, it created what was originally known as the Norwegian Independent Company Number no. One. And these were Norwegians who fled their country. Some of them fled into Sweden through the forest. Some of them uh, hopped on fishing boats and crossed to the Shetland Islands and made their way to England where they wanted to serve their country. This company, their kind of claim to fame, their first was, I think, I believe it was in 1942, uh, where it joined uh, British troops in uh, a raid on the Lofoten Islands, uh, blowing up uh, fish oil factories and uh, gun emplacements and taking prisoners back, Quislings and German troops. The fish oil then, the, the Germans uh, requisition took over fish oil factories to make, you know, lubricant for tanks and so on and so forth. And then they were commanded by Lieutenant Martin Linga, who basically was an army reservist. He was a, an actor for the National Theater, <laughs> but he was in the Norwegian Reserve, military reserve. And of course, when Nazi Germany invaded, he fought and actually was wounded. And he was in a, a hospital on a hospital ship. And there was a, would you believe, a Norwegian doctor 
who uh, recommended him to uh, when uh, SOE was formed. Right. And that's how he ended up commanding this company. And so there was a second raid on the Lofoten Islands. And in that raid, uh, he took two bullets to the chest and was killed. And so to honor him, the company was uh, became Company Linga. And so in the book, there were a lot of agents that trained and it was extensive, very difficult training, extensive training. Yeah. Uh, and so the agents, the commandos that were smuggled back into Norway, and the book depicts that, um, uh, they were highly trained and pretty doggone good soldiers and blended into the population and uh, led organization. Yeah, that was new for me. I, I, I was not aware of that. And that was that, that training uh, and be, sending them back. Do you know if any of them were involved in the heavy water plant? In fact, very relevant question. All nine of the, uh, the Norse hydro plant uh, were company linga. Interesting. That was the, the most famous of an act by the Norwegian resistance. And it's the one that most people know about uh, or have heard about. It seems to me near the start of the war, when the Nazis were coming down Oslo Fjord, there was a boat that the Norwegians successfully sunk, right? And I've forgotten the name of that. Uh, the irony is you, you asking about it, if your uh, viewers want to tune in, want to go on my website at www.donpugnettijr.com, they could read uh, about it. I just posted that very story, Eric, this week, and I did it to commemorate this day, this very day, would you believe is the 82nd anniversary of the Nazi invasion of Norway. The, the battleship uh, Blucher, B-L-U-C-H-E-R. And uh, the interesting thing about this ship is it was the latest addition to the German Navy. It was a battleship, uh, a major battleship that uh, was completed, I think it was 19, in 1939. And so here it is, the flagship, the lead ship of this flotilla. So Jerry went on telling the story of this very significant event in amazing detail so that you can hear the rest of this interview but not miss the story, I refer you to his blog. That's at www.donpugnetti.com. It occurred to me there's a number of places and times when our heroes go up to Ohita, up somewhere. And it, the way I got the feeling is that the Germans sort of either had no idea those were there or no one ever said, oh, yeah, so-and-so has a hit up there. You can go, you know, a, a sympathizer or something. But it always seemed like they were fairly remote and the Germans just didn't go, didn't know. Is, it, is that true in, in what your understanding was? Yes, but there are, you know, so many Hutas that are so remote. And yet, you know, what's interesting, not terribly far even from cities and 
but yet they are really in the, the rugged mountains. There are so many cabins that are very remote and just basically <laughs> virtually undiscoverable. Right. You know? It didn't seem like there's roads to them either. So that's why the classic Norwegians are just doing this crazy hike to get there is no big deal. Yeah. And there was one outside of Bergen, actually a ways away that I went to that family members took me to in the middle, really in the middle of nowhere where some reservoirs uh, exist that basically provides the drinking water for the city of Bergen. And this was an extraordinary remote uh, cabin that, you know, no running water, no electricity, not, nothing of that nature. In the middle of this rugged, barren landscape, which Eric, I have to tell you, was, I think, was the most beautiful place on this planet I've ever mm. been. Right. I guess it was early on this significant event, and I had to read about it. Can you, can you talk about Televolg? Yes. Yes, I can. It was the most horrific Nazi atrocity of the war. Televog was a fishing village, about 400 people at the time, just south of Bergen, about, I think, 12 to 15 miles out on the coast, an, an island on, the, I think it's Sopra Island. It became a jumping off place for fishing boats going to and from the Shetland Islands and uh, Company Linga agents but also the Shetland bus. And there was, and that, that was a fleet of fishing boats that had fled uh, Norway and kind of assembled to, to shuttle agents and uh, weapons and equipment back and forth and take people who had to flee the country back to the Shetland. So it became a jumping off point. The Nazis got suspicious and they sent this Norwegian Nazi police officer, a member of the Stapo, which I call my own is Quisling's goon squad, sent him to investigate. And he posed as a Bible salesman who, you know, wanted to get to England, but he was uh, knocking on doors and questioning people, finding out what he could. And versions of this story vary, but either his investigation or somebody else, the Germans were alerted. Somebody filled their guts and said that, well, there are people from England at this house right now. And so when the word got to the, the Germans, there was a, a nine-member force of SS soldiers, Gestapo agents, and Stapo Norwegian police officers that came to the island and the village, including the high commander of the Bergen area uh, for the SS. They stormed the house. There was a shootout, and the commander himself was killed, and, and his second, his assistant, second in command, was shot and killed. One company Linga agent was killed. Another one was mortally wounded. And so, of course, they arrested the homeowners uh, and uh, took the wounded company Linga agent. But what that did resulted in at the appointed hour of the funeral services for the commander and his second in command, the Nazis took 18 Norwegian prisoners from Greeny Prison outside of Oslo, and took them into a field and shot them, dumped them in a mass grave. And then Terboven himself, the head of the Nazi, he was a personal friend of Hitler. He came himself uh, to uh, the island with a force of soldiers 
They ordered all the towns, the villagers outside their homes. They torched all the homes or otherwise destroyed every, every building in the town was destroyed and burned to the ground. They, they burned and sank fishing boats, requisitioned all the farm animals, all the cows and pigs and whatnot that they hadn't requisitioned already. They took all the men, ages uh, 16 to 17, somewhere in there, they took them and ultimately shipped them to concentration camps in Germany. They took all the older men and women and children and put them in concentration camps. So effectively, the town ceased to exist. And it was, uh, it in and of itself engendered renewed resistance activity and, and escalated the desire to, to fight. Right. I think, I don't know if that became a phrase, remember Televolk. Yes. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So back to the Norwegian stoicism, and I, that's familiar to me. <laughs> In my family, if you don't feel good that day, you do not talk about it. Yes. But that, I, and I don't know if I read this or was in your book, something about one of these men that was being shipped south to a concentration camp. And the last thing his wife said to him was, Ver Norsk, be Norwegian. That is quite a statement. That's interesting. huh? Mm-hmm. You could have said, hold strong. To thine own self be true. Mm-hmm. That incident, what was the one request before the firing squad? Remove our hoods. And uh, I hate to say this, Eric, but that was true. Yes. You know, the book is about so much courage and sacrifice. And here's a people, their country is suffering starvation. But at the same time, you know, here is a people that come what may, they're compelled to to plunge headlong and fight back. Mm -hmm. So in your new book, A Coat Dyed Black, that's one of the last questions. What does the coat mean for you that you chose to call it that? The coat dyed black, and from the beginning, you know, the 1970s, when I first determined, you know, I'd I'd like to take a stab at writing a book, that was the original title, Mm. because it talks about the resistance, the underground, operating below the surface, mm-hmm. so you can operate without avoiding arrest. Dying a coat black just to me conveys this resisting oppression and doing it in the shadows, in the in the darkness. Right. That's what it conveyed. It's a real story. There, there indeed was a real, genuine coat. You work so hard on this book, and I'll be the crass fan and say. When's your next one? There doesn't have to be another one because this. Well, <laughs> well, yes, dot, dot, dot. You know, I, of course, I've had a long passion for writing. Yep. For this one, uh, of course, a lot went into it. But when I did the writing, I have to tell you, I had a ball. I didn't encounter this thing called writer's block. I had a general framework in my head of where the story was going to go. And I Sometimes I'd have to sit for a couple, three days and, uh, and let thoughts germinate. And I let the story go to where it took me. And so, again, bottom line, I loved writing this story. I had a whale of a lot of fun. So book number two, yes, I would like to write book number two. In fact, I've already begun 
Here's what's happened after, you know, I started drafting book number two because I have an idea and somebody planted a seed and said to me, you know, I think you should write a book about Norwegians fishing in Alaska. I've been overwhelmed by the positive response and success. And and so that makes me want to write a related book, but I would like there to be a book number two, maybe a book number three. I'm proud of this book. This comes close to being the best part of my life. You know, at age 73, it means that I better get going on book number two pretty quick. <laughs> so anyway. Did you have any trouble finding a publisher, getting that going? What I did is I published it independently. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of major reasons. First was the fact I'm not getting any younger. To go through the process of, and remember, I'm a first-time author. Right. Head up extensive background in writing. So to go through the process of finding an editor, and if an editor would be interested in the book, they would try to sell it to a publisher. And given the nature of the publishing industry today, where it's very, very selective, it would be a two to three year process if I was fortunate enough to have a publisher want to publish it. I didn't want to wait that long. And secondly, it's a very personal story. Yes. It involves family. If I were lucky enough to have a publisher, as soon as I signed that contract, I would surrender some rights. So if uh, I'd be assigned an agent, and if that agent were to say, we don't like the title, we want to change it to this, they could do that. If they said, for example, you know, this character doesn't quite do it for me. I I want to change the personality a little bit. rename the character and change what he or she does, uh, I would have to yield to that. And that I I didn't want to do it. So I basically publish it independently by myself using professional help. And there's a Seattle-based firm, Girl Friday Productions, phenomenal company that works with publishers to to produce the book, but also was established to help self-published authors bring a book from the developmental stage, uh, in my case, the latter phases of editing, uh, on through to uh, publication. And uh, I'm deeply indebted to them, and I was able uh, to do it. I'm marketing it myself, and, and but it's been going really, really well. So where can someone pick up your book? It is available. You can find it on my website, www donpugnettijr.com, but it's available on Amazon Books, right. uh, Barnes and Noble, and independent bookshop.org and indiebooks.org, which works with independent bookstores uh, throughout. And it's being carried, uh, Seattle, for example, it will be carried in Finney Books up on Finney Hill. It's available Liberty Bay Books in Paulsbo has it. And I think uh, um, Invitation Books in Gig Harbor has it. And would you believe a, a bookstore in Antwerp, Belgium, through connections there is carrying the book. So, uh, but thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Eric. All right. We'll be talking. So I do recommend reading Jerry's book or Don Pugnetti Jr.'s book, as it says on the cover. Uh, there's something about it being a fictional account instead of a, a nonfiction documentary type of an account that makes it much easier to read and 
uh, I think has a lot more human interest to it. That's what carried me along. And I hope we'll see it carried by a bookstore near you soon. Now, after this difficult subject, I thought I'd play a little music as I do on this program, rather than play some Grieg in a minor key or some dramatic music by Sibelius. I thought I'd boost our mood and play Hulingen. It's a Rhinelander or folk dance tune um, that south of Norway, they wouldn't call it a Rhinelander. Down towards Germany, they call it a Schottische. This is by a band named after a distant cousin to Edvard Grieg. That's the Nordog Grieg Spellmannslag from the Bay Area of California. I know several of these musicians and they're a really fun bunch. And so it's time to wind up this program. Intro music is The New March, played by Morten Alfred Heurup and Ruthie Dornfeld. And our exit music was composed and performed by Daryl Jackson. Please visit our website at nordicontap, all one word, dot com, for extras for this episode. For example, a link to Jerry's website and his biography, among other things. 
leave a comment or write to us at nordicontap at gmail.com. I'm your host, Eric Stavney, saying, Till next gong, be safe.